If you'll open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. You know, there's almost nothing that you can't find online anymore, particularly instructions to fix or to repair almost anything. Last year, we had a, a dryer go out, and so when Jalen said, you know, the dryer's, uh, the dryer's not working, I said, well, do we have money in the budget to get one? Do we need to call a repairman? She said, I think I can fix it myself. And I said, what are you talking about? You can fix the dryer yourself. She said, well, you know, Kim Fong, she fixed her refrigerator. And I said, well, I mean, you're saying Kim, but I'm sure John was there to help her. And she said, I think John handed in the tools. I said, well, how did Kim fix their refrigerator? Well, she watched how to do it on YouTube. And I said, well, how are you going to fix our dryer? She said, I'm going to watch YouTube. And so I said, do you, well, do you need me to help you? And she said, why don't you go upstairs and write a sermon, and I'll let you know when it's done. Well, I went upstairs, and I, I was counting the minutes. I, I figured she's going to need my assistance. She's going to need some help when, that, when she watches that YouTube video. Sure enough, after a couple of minutes, I heard her say, Honey, would you come downstairs? I need your help. So I'm thinking to myself, I'm right. She's wrong. I'll wait and tell her later. Well, I said, What can I do for you? What do you need me to do? She says, I just need you to help me move the, dry, the dryer out a little bit so I can get behind it. Then you can go back upstairs. Well, lo and behold, she watched the videos, she repaired the dryer herself, I don't know what the comment, it's like doing brain surgery or something, you take the back off and, you know, you misplace one wire here or there and who knows what's going to happen, but we got good insurance on her, so I thought we'll give it a shot, <laughs> and uh, sure enough, uh, she fixed the dryer and uh, I wrote a sermon, and so we like instructions, we like to know how to do things, and and we feel a little bit insecure when we dig into something and we, we can't figure it out. You know, it's a little bit like that with, with prayer, except God has given us some instructions. He's not only given us so many wonderful and magnificent promises that encourage us to pray. I mean, the Word of God is filled with incentives to pray. Where God says He hears our prayers and that He answers our prayers and He, he beckons us into His presence like like a father beckons his children, promising blessings and, and, uh, and, and good gifts that could come only, only from him. And you know, the truth of the matter is, sometimes when we enter into our prayer closet, we just, we just don't know where to begin. We don't know how to get started. We know that the potential in prayer is phenomenally great, but, but what do we do? What do we say? How do we... How do we proceed? Well, that's exactly what the Lord's Prayer is. The Lord's Prayer is an instruction manual to guide us in our praying. Look with me beginning in Matthew chapter 6 in verse 9. Right in the, in the central part, the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, pray, the, pray in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But 
If you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Normally, we should begin our prayers by focusing our attention and affections on our Heavenly Father. Notice that's where Jesus began. He began with His Father. Now, I say normally because life isn't normal. And when we go into the presence of God, our circumstances aren't always normal. I say normally because sometimes we go into God's presence and we've got someone that we love very, very much who is very, very sick. And there's this pattern that we're given, a template that we should generally follow, but sometimes we're so overwhelmed, we're so grief-stricken, we're so concerned, we're so burdened, we're so worried that it would not only be abnormal for us to follow this particular pattern, it would be unwise. God knows we're children. God knows we're filled with weaknesses and that we stumble on so many occasions. And that there are times when we close our, our bedroom door and we get by our chair where we typically read our Bible and pray and we fall on our knees and we pour our heart out directly, immediately, almost in a convulsive kind of way to God about a particular person or circumstance or situation. And it would be lunacy to think that God's up there saying, no, mm-mm, listen, our Father who art in heaven, you begin with me. You start with me. You follow this particular pattern. God knows our weaknesses. He knows our frailties. He knows our hardships. He knows our difficulties. And so I say normally we begin with God, but it's not always like that. So normally though we begin with God. We pray to God as our Father, which communicates the idea of intimacy. We're not going into the presence of a stranger. We're not going into the presence of one who is a, maybe a distant relative that we seldom see. We're not going into the presence of one who is indifferent toward us. We're going into the presence of one who has saved us, one who has bought us with the blood of his own son, who has clothed us in the righteousness of his son, who has adopted us into his family, who has filled us with his Holy Spirit, who loves us and has a plan for our lives. And he works all of the things in our lives for our good, his glory. He he oversees our lives. We go into the presence of one who cares for us more than any person on this world could possibly care for us. If we were to take the affections and the love of all of the people that love us and care about us and are concerned about us, and and we could put it into into a, a big container, so to speak, and then we could measure that container filled with all the good wishes and all of the love and all of the concern and and all of the heartfelt devotion of family members and friends. And and we were to put it next to the container 
containing God's affections and love that would be, that wouldn't even be comparable. The love he has for us is incomprehensible. No matter how smart we are, no matter how spiritual we are, we understand just an infinitesimal drop how much God truly loves us. He's our Father. We say our Father, and there's an intimacy about that, but we need to be careful that our intimacy doesn't drift into familiarity. He's our Father in heaven, seated on heaven's throne. He's our Father, but He's also our Creator. He's our Father, but He's our Redeemer. He's our Father, and His Son is our Lord. There's a, there's a certain reverence that goes along with that. Oh, you don't change your tone. That's ridiculous. You don't use words in prayer that were used in 1611. We don't talk like that to anybody else. We don't talk like that to God, but we don't talk to God in a demeaning or depreciative sort of way. We don't, we don't make light of Him. He's our Father in heaven, seated on heaven's throne. He's our Heavenly Father. There's a corporate nature to the Christian life. We live, in a, we live in a day and time where people say they love Jesus, but they don't care so much for the church. That's not true. You can't love Jesus without loving the church because the church is his body. He died for the church. He's building the church. Brick by brick. With every... With every new convert, he's, he's adding to his church. There's a, there's a corporate element about it. There's something unique when we gather together and we pray congregationally and we worship congregationally and we study the Bible congregationally that, that, that isn't present when we're alone with him. There is a gathering together, no matter how few or how many, there's the gathering together of people who have a passion for God, a love for God, a yearning for God, a desire for God. So there's a, there's a corporate nature as he begins the prayer. Normally, begin your prayer time by focusing your attention and affections on God. It's, it's theologically right to begin with God. But it's also psychologically good to begin with God. You say, Pastor, what do you mean by that? Well, often when I go into God's presence, I've got, I've got issues and problems and circumstances that I want to pray about, and, and they seem so big and enormous and, and almost overwhelming. And when I begin with the problem, my problem seems so monumental, and I forget my God sits on heaven's throne. Theologically, psychologically, it's healthy to begin with God, worshiping God, singing to God, praising God, adoring God. Because when you then begin to move into your concerns and your requests and your petitions, your God is firmly fixated in your mind. He is on heaven's throne. There is no mountain he can't move. Normally, that's where you begin. Secondly, I want you to notice that we pray with specificity like a laser beam. 
I say this over and over again because I think it's one of the most helpful ways to revolutionize your prayer life. Praying with specificity. Knowing exactly what you're asking God to do. The more general your prayer, the more general your answer will be. The more nebulous your prayer request, the more nebulous the answer will be. Could you imagine blind Bartimaeus going into the presence of Jesus and Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? I want you to bless me. No, that's not what he said. He said, I want, you, I want to see. I want to regain my sight. And Jesus says, be it done to you as you have believed. There was no generalities about the request of Bartimaeus. He knew exactly. If, if a person were, were listening to our prayer time, or reading our prayer journal, they ought to be able to hear or to read exactly what we're asking God to do. Be very specific. Jesus is very specific. There are six things that he brings into his prayer. The first three have to do with God's glory. God's name, God's kingdom, and God's will. He prays that God's name would be revered and honored. The name of a person represented the person in the ancient world, and the name of God represents God. All that God is, who God is, is tied up in his name. So to have reverence and respect and awe for the name of God is to have reverence and respect and awe for God himself. It's to, to recognize him for who he is and what he's done. And if we're, going to, if we're going to treat his name with great respect and reverence, it ought to carry out in the way that we live, that if we treat his name as holy, we ought to live holy lives. But he moves from God's name to God's kingdom. Thy kingdom come. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Consummate history as we now know it and usher us into the eternal age. But until that day, let your kingdom spread. Until that day, let your kingdom expand and grow as more and more people come to saving faith in Christ so that there's more and more peoples gathered around that eternal throne. People from every tribe and language and nation singing and worshiping the Savior, living together throughout eternity in camaraderie and fellowship of the Spirit. Pray for the expansion and the consummation of God's kingdom. We've signed up, as uh, Jay Lynn and I, for the, for the Pray for Every Home that Blake shared about a few weeks ago. So every, uh, every day during the week, we're getting five names of people in our, in our neighborhood. The very first day, interestingly enough, uh, one of the names was a seminary colleague of mine that lives around the corner. We didn't pray for their salvation, uh, but we prayed that, that God would fill their home with joy and give them strength and empower their, their, uh, their service together. But we get the names of people in our neighborhood and the street that they, they live on, and we pray for them by name. 
Because we want God's kingdom to expand and God's kingdom to grow. You know, most people, I wouldn't say most, many people come to faith in Christ and they, they've never had anybody praying for them. I don't know of a single person that was praying for me when I got saved. And you may be in the very same situation. Most people, at least if they're related to the church, they have a mom or a dad, a grandparent or a friend praying for them. We've got, we've got uh, long-term neighbors on one side that we've been reaching out to over the years. We've, on the other side of us, people kind of go through that home on a regular basis. I think maybe I run them off or something. But we've got a, a, a new family that's lived there now for about a, uh, about a year, and, and we're praying for them. Roman Catholic background, it's clear that they, they don't know the, the Savior from our just casual conversations about, about religion. We, we're trying to develop a friendship and a relationship rather than uh, putting any barriers up first. And so we'll drive in some days at the end of a long day and they'll be out in the front yard playing with their kids and, and, and Jay Lynn will say, you know, um, let's go over there the and I mentioned our neighbors, and they're out in the, in the yard. Let's go out and uh, spend some time just talking with them. And I said, I'm kind of tired. It's been a long day. I, why don't you go? And, and she'll say, listen, loggerhead, you're supposed to be a pastor. You're supposed to have a heart for people. We're going next door, and you can come willingly, or I can drag you there. And I said, I'd really like to go over there and see how they're doing. And so we just sit in the front yard, and we have casual conversation with them and look for opportunities to, uh, to minister to them. We ought to be praying for the expansion and the consummation of God's kingdom. But if we're going to pray for the expansion of it, we ought to engage it. We ought to be a part of it. Whether we're a a clerk at uh, Macy's or whether we are a minister of the gospel, we're all to be servants of the Savior. And we're all to be gospel witnesses. So we pray for not just the consummation but also the expansion And then he prayed that God's will be done on earth as it always is in heaven. That God's will be done. You know, the interesting thing is that it was that passion that drove Jesus. In fact, Jesus said doing the will of God was like eating a good meal. It was like like the strength that comes from a person sitting down who hasn't eaten all day and eating a good substantive meal. It, it invigorated him. This is what he says in John chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus said to them, to the disciples, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He says, that, that's what motivates me. That's what drives me. That's what moves me to do the will of God. He prayed a similar prayer when it wasn't so easy to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Matthew chapter 26, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He's facing the cross. He doesn't fear the agony of the pain, as torturous as it would be. He has no idea 
will be like not to know his father's manifest presence and to bear the sin of the world. He goes on and says again for the second time. He prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we're going to pray that, then we've got to carry it out. If we're going to pray that, then we've got to be a part of doing God's will in our own lives. But he also prays in verses 11 and 13 about ordinary concerns, daily concerns. Don't be concerned about bringing your concerns to your father. You know, sometimes there's this little spiritual game we play. Well, I'm just going to pray for others. I'm not going to pray for my needs. I'm just going to pray for others. I'm not going to pray for my concerns. Uh, That's rubbish. He says, God wants to hear what's on your heart. Well, it's just so trivial and insignificant. God wants to hear it. It's so big and monumental, I don't think anything can be done about it. Let God determine that. He wants to hear us pray about our provisions and our pardon and our protection. He says, ask God to meet your daily needs. Give us this day our daily bread. It seems so minor, so trivial, so insignificant that the the church fathers in the 3rd and 4th century, they thought, this can't mean what it says. So they had to allegorize it. They they tried to make it bigger than it was. Calvin says that kind of thinking was ridiculous. That it means exactly what it says. Give us this day our daily bread. Meet our daily needs. Whatever they may be. In the ancient world, it was food. Because in the ancient world, for many people, they would go out in the fields. They would work that day. At the end of the day, they would be paid. They would go to the market and buy their food for that day. They would go home with no money, having spent all of their money at the market for their food. They would eat it that night, get up the next morning, go into the, into the, into the center of the town, hoping that someone would say, okay, I need you today to work in my fields, and that means you'd be able to feed your family again today. Well, we've got refrigerators, and our refrigerators are, are full or less full to, depending upon what day of the week it is, and when we go grocery shopping, and we ought to be thanking God for the food that we have, because how little we have is not as little as many people have around the world, is it? That's why I'm so proud of the, of the Petersons and the ministry that they've initiated, Gospel and Grain, and how we're able to partner, partner with them and, and uh, give a portion of our GCO offering to that organization. And then so many of us have, have sponsored children that are a, a part of their of their ministry because literally those children would not eat many days if it were not for the food that they received in the morning and in the afternoon when they gather together in that compound before they go to school and when they come back from school to receive help for their with their uh, with their homework and education pray for pray for daily provision. Don't be afraid to pray that God provides you 
a partner if you're single. Don't be afraid to pray that God would fill your life with joy rather than despair. Don't be afraid to pray that God would give you a a job where you could make a difference in the lives of other people. Pray for those seemingly mundane things that we might think are too unspiritual to pray about, but he says pray for them. He says pray for pardon. Ask your father to forgive you of your sins. Notice that Matthew uses a a financial term, debt, and forgive us our debts as we've forgiven those who are indebted to us. Uh, Matthew, the tax collector, knew what it was very like to be in debt to God. He owed a debt he couldn't pay. God paid a debt he didn't know so that Matthew could know forgiveness. So he uses the terminology of debt. And we all know what it's like to sin every single day because none of us cross every T, dot every I every day. Every one of us sin every day. Not a single one of us make it through the day living without sin. We think a bad thought. We have a wrong emotion. We make a wrong, we speak a wrong word. And yet he says, if you confess your sins... He's faithful and righteous to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And so you have, a, you have a wrong thought towards someone, an ill will toward them in your mind, and you say, God, forgive me, I've sinned. Please wash me clean. And he, he cleanses you. Your, your relationship is, is deepened and restored, and you're able to move on. Pray for pardon. Sometimes that's the very first thing that we do in our prayer times. Often in my prayer time, before I ever even focus on God, I go to confession. And I spend just a moment or two thinking, Lord, I, I, I hide my sin from myself. If you'll help me by bringing to my mind where I've wronged you, sinned against you or others. And I don't get a spotlight out and, and search it over. I try to confess my sin like you do when I commit it. But I realize that often I kind of try to shovel it under the, the rug. And I don't want there to be an interruption between my fellowship with God and in prayer. So pray for pardon. Pray for protection. This is an interesting request because if you don't understand what, what Jesus is saying, you'll misunderstand what he's saying. Notice he says in verse 13, pray and do not lead us into temptation. Well, James teaches us that not only can God not be tempted, he doesn't tempt anyone. But the very next phrase elaborates and expands and explains for us what Jesus meant when Jesus says, but deliver us from evil. And you could say, deliver us from the evil one. He's setting traps for us. God, let me see his traps. Show me the way of escape. Oh, and Father, for my, for my daughter as she goes off to high school, I pray in Jesus' name, show her where Satan is sit- setting traps for her. As, her. as her father, let me see the traps that he's setting for her. Show her the way of escape. Give me insight into what's going on in her life so that I can, I can guide her and protect her and, and, and direct her towards you. Pray for protection. Because Satan never rests. Now the only request that he comes back and he reiterates is the idea of forgiveness. The third thought is don't let bitterness and resentment endanger your prayer life. Notice after he's finished 
he says, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, now he, he's moved from praying to meddling. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. He's not saying you're forgiven, in, you're, for, you're ultimately saved by your forgiveness of others. What he's saying is when you fail to forgive others of their sins, it brings serious communication problems between you and God. When we looked at Mark's gospel, we talked about this. Mark chapter 11, verse 20, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. That's a powerful thought. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. Unforgiveness develops into bitterness, and bitterness hinders effective prayer. I think there's some confusion sometimes about how forgiveness relates to the feeling of having forgiven someone. Sometimes we genuinely forgive them, but every time we see them, the feeling of hurt and betrayal comes if they've betrayed us and hurt us. They might have wronged us very, very intentionally and very publicly and very, and very painfully. And we want to follow the example of Jesus where Jesus on the cross as he was dying in Luke chapter 23 said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And in our prayer we say, Father, I forgive this person work in their life, bless them and help them and, and restore them to where they, they need to be. Bless their family and their children. And, and so we, we genuinely pray for them and we, we feel all right about it. Then we, we, we come to work or we, we uh, pass them in the church hallway and all of a sudden there's this feeling, this, this pang, and we think, I must not have forgiven them. Or it would be eliminated. Corey ten Boom had the very same problem. Corey ten Boom had been betrayed by a friend and she prayed that God would, would grant her grace to forgive this person of their sin against her. And, and she forgave them, but she describes how for two consecutive nights she didn't get a single hour of sleep. And that running through her mind were struggles and thoughts about this person. And between the first and second night, she saw them and she felt the pain all over again. She went to her pastor. She described the scenario, the situation, the circumstance to her, to her pastor. And he's such a wise, he was such a wise man. He said, he said Corey... In just a few hours, the church bells are going to begin ringing. And the bell ringer is going to ascend the, the bell tower and he's going to grab that, that big heavy rope and he's going to begin to go up and down ringing the bells and announcing to the, to the, to the village what time it is. But what's going to happen is there's going to come a moment when he quits pulling the rope. 
But what happens is the bell keeps ringing. It keeps ringing loudly and forcefully initially. And then it begins to ring just a little bit less forceful, a little bit less powerfully until eventually it quits ringing altogether. Cor, you've let go of the rope, but give it just a little bit more time for the bell to quit ringing. The deeper the betrayal, the more painful the incident, the longer it takes for the bell to quit ringing. But give it time. Let me give you a couple of final thoughts that I hope will give you a more effective prayer life. Normally begin your prayer time focusing on God by worshiping Him, reading psalms to Him, and singing songs to Him. Begin by focusing your attention on Him. Normally begin right there. And then begin to pour your heart out to him with as much specificity as you can about what you want him to do in the lives of others and in your own life and circumstances and and situations, the good, the bad, and the ugly, whatever it may be. Great specificity. And the entire time be reminded he is your heavenly father, he loves you, and he has given you magnificent promises that will encourage you to pray. Pray big prayers. There may be no bigger prayer that you will ever pray. In fact, there will be no bigger prayer than you will ever pray than a prayer asking God to save you. It's the largest prayer, the most important prayer you'll ever pray. You know, I don't want to say that God never hears the prayers of lost people unequivocally because I don't think my my degree doesn't put me at a stature where I can tell God what he can do and can't do. Whether he can answer the prayer of a lost person or not. I think normally he doesn't. Because to do the lesser thing, to answer their prayers like he answers the prayers of his children would be counterintuitive to what he wants. He wants their heart. He wants their affections. There is a prayer he always hears and it is the prayer, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. In just a moment, I'm going to close us in prayer this morning. We're not going to have a, a traditional invitation. We've got a, a matter or two that we want to deal with. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, and you would like to talk with someone about your spiritual life, come see me. Maybe there's somebody in here that you do know. Uh, Go to them. They'll bring you to me. I'd be glad to talk with you. I would love to come into your home, sit on your couch, and share with you how you could know Jesus. The other thing, if you've been looking for a church home, you're waiting, today was the day you're coming down. Today's the day. Uh, No problem. Come down after the service. We'll make sure that we get you signed up. We've got uh, 27 people this morning, I think, going through our Discover 9th and O class. We've got room in the next one just for you. 
we'd be glad to talk with you. Let me lead us in a word of prayer and then a couple of things we want to handle. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you today that you have given us your word as a guide and instruction to follow. Help it to make us a more effective, to make us more effective men and women of prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.